with me to the book of Psalms, chapter number 31 tonight. This morning we preached out of the uh, 40th chapter of the book of Psalms. We preached about that horrible pit that every single one of us was born into as sinners lost and undone. But how that Christ came by our way with His strong hand, lifted us up by grace out of that pit and set our feet upon a solid rock and established our goings. But tonight I want to preach a message that I believe to be a little bit different. Uh, certainly, I, you know, I don't know the heart's condition of anybody under the sound of my voice. Uh, I only know my own, but I do believe on Sunday night, typically, your church is filled with people that make a profession of faith where they believe that they know Christ as their Savior. And tonight I want to preach a message that is geared particularly to the believer. Uh, now, one thing I love about the Word of God is that most of the time, if you preach a sermon right, you preach enough gospel in it that a person gets saved, whether you're preaching on the gospel or on the cross or on anything. And certainly tonight, if you're lost and undone, don't leave this place without getting it settled with the Lord through the person of Jesus Christ. But tonight, I want us to focus on a little bit different thought than we took this morning. The Bible says in verse number 1 of the 31st Psalm, "...in thee, O Lord, do I put my trust..." Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock for an house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privily for me. For thou art my strength. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast known my soul in adversities, and hast not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. Thou hast set my feet in a large room. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Mine eye is consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly. For my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity, and my bones are consumed. I was a reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and a fear to mine acquaintance. They that did see me without fled from me. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel." For I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. But I trusted in Thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my God. My times are in Thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. Make Thy face to shine upon Thy servant. Save me for Thy mercy's sake. Let me not be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon Thee Let the wicked be ashamed, and let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he hath showed me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee. O love the Lord, all ye his saints, for the Lord preserveth the faithful 
and plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. I want to read a couple of those verses once more. Look at verse number 1, and notice this phrase. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Look at verse 17. This is repeated. This thought is where it says, Let me not be ashamed, O Lord. I want to preach to you tonight on the idea of not being ashamed of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that You'd bless Your Word, that You gain glory and honor out of everything that's said and done tonight. Lord, I pray that You'd just put a hedge about this building this evening. And Lord, that You would allow liberty for the Holy Ghost to work. Lord, I know that Satan would uh, devise to destroy this little body and group of believers. And I know that he would seek to discourage us and to defeat us. But Lord, I thank You that we have the victory through Christ Jesus. And I pray that tonight You give us the courage and faith that it takes to believe You and to trust You and to go on with You and for You for Your glory and honor. Accomplish in each heart that which You deem necessary. And we'll thank You for it. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we read this passage of Scripture, there is a tone that David sets throughout the entire chapter. And you'll see it over and over again as he is describing a time in his life when he was surrounded by hostility. You can see it there in verse number uh, 10 where he says, For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity and my bones are consumed. He's speaking of an inward turmoil. In verse number 11 he says, I was a reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among my neighbors and fear to mine acquaintance. They that did see me without fled from me. He's speaking of a turmoil that is raging outside of him and his life is in utter disarray and in the midst of this trial and difficulty he prays and he asks God for deliverance and he asks him for strength and he asks him he asks him for a lot of different things uh, but he also along with it understands that there is a danger of being ashamed of God in the midst of our trials this is the reason David prays this. He, he asks God, he doesn't just say, I'll not be ashamed, but he prays and asks the Lord to help him to not be ashamed of God in the midst of his life. Could I say to you today that I believe one of the greatest problems in New Testament Christianity is that most of us are ashamed of God. Now, you may say, well, preacher, that's a broad brush to paint with, and that's a harsh thing to say. But the truth of the matter is, you can tell it. You go into a restaurant with most people, and I've been guilty of it, friend. Uh, we're going on and laughing and talking so much that the people next to us can't even hardly eat. But then when it comes time to pray, we get real quiet. Uh, whenever we're at work, we can talk about anything in the world going on in our lives. I mean, we can talk about what we did on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. But when it comes to talking about our church family and talking about what we did on Sunday, we all of a sudden get quiet. The devil's, uh, one of his chief tools is to bring about shame and guilt and fear in the life of the believer to try to dissuade them from taking a stand. Because God's people have always been a vocal people, and they should be a vocal people. There's nothing can replace the power of personal testimony and the ability to tell people what God's done for you in your life. And the devil understands and knows that if he can discourage you from doing that, he's taken one of the greatest abilities that God's blessed you with. He's taken that out of your life. 
It's funny how we could be so ashamed of a God that's done so much for us. I would ask you this question tonight. What has God ever done to cause you to be ashamed of Him? When has He ever done anything that embarrasses you? When has He ever done anything that hasn't just been goodness and grace and glory in your life? I know for me personally, there's never been a thing God's done in my life that I had any reason to be ashamed of Him. But do you know that the flesh is not a logical or reasonable thing? Uh, The flesh seeks to be ashamed of God even though there's no reason to be ashamed of Him. And there is a great temptation in our life to exhibit this shame towards God. Uh, What does it mean to be ashamed? Most of us know what it means to be ashamed. It means to uh, exhibit guilt or embarrassment over something. And uh, if you hang out with this crowd long enough, they'll embarrass you about something. You'll know what shame is. It's fascinating how at an early age children begin to learn what shame is. And uh, it does not take much. A little child, especially once they get about two, three years old, they begin to get embarrassed about certain things. And uh, I know that, uh, you know, certain children, you draw a lot of attention to them, they'll begin to get embarrassed. I know a lot of adults that are that way too, amen? And they begin to get embarrassed and ashamed. Uh, It creates a sense of discomfort in their existence. They do not want this kind of attention to be Paid to them. David says in the midst of this trial and difficulty, Lord, I want you to help me. Though I may be ashamed of my sin, though I may be ashamed of my weakness, though I may be ashamed of my decisions, Lord, let me never be ashamed of you in my life. I want to give you a few things tonight, and I'll be honest with you, I just don't know how it's going to go this evening. So you buckle in and hang on and we'll see. But I want to give you five things that I believe David deals with tonight that we ought never to be ashamed of. Look with me again in verse number 1. Notice the phrase that he opens this chapter with. He says, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Look down at verse number 3. He says of God, For thou art my rock and my fortress. Look down at verse number 4. He says, For thou art my strength. Look down in verse number 6. He says, But I trust In the Lord. Look down in verse 14. He says, But I trusted in thee, O Lord. And notice this. He said, I said, Thou art my God. Now, he's speaking of Jehovah, the God of Israel, when he says this. And he says, Lord, I'm not ashamed to tell people that you are my God. Can I say first off that as Christians, we ought never to be ashamed to profess Him to others around us. I mean, this world would have us to believe that it's a thing to be ashamed of, to need God. Could I say tonight, I don't care who you are, whether you realize it or not, you need God just as bad as I need God. There's a tendency sometimes to think about preachers, think, oh, well, they really need God. No, they don't really need God any more than you really need God. We all really need God. It was said before by a, a politician that used to be a professional wrestler. That just makes you laugh right there, don't it? That he made the statement concerning religion. You know, that's what lost people call Christianity. They call it religion because they don't know what else to call it. All they know is religion. All they know is man's good works in an attempt to pacify God. They have no notion of grace, but that's what they call it. And he said that religion is just a crutch that weak people need. Brother, and I I guess he thought that would embarrass or anger us, but can I say that that he got it wrong? Christ isn't a crutch. He's a stretcher. He's not just there to help you. He's there to carry you. He's not just there to do part. He's there to do all. But as Christians, sometimes we get a little prideful, and we don't want to really admit that we need God to fight our battles for us. 
You know, that's a real good way to get a giant take your head off. Amen? The reason that David won the battle that he was in is because he recognized that the battle is the Lord's. But do you know, listen to me tonight, there's people ever there's marriages falling apart because people don't want to ask God for help. There's homes crumbling because people don't want to ask God for help. There's children that are on their way to a devil's hell and they're making a wreck of their life because there's parents that don't want to admit that they need help from God. Let me tell you something. You better learn a little thing about humility or you're going to wind up in a mess. David said, I'm not afraid to say that the Lord's my strength. I'm not afraid to say that He's my rock, He's my fortress. I'm not afraid to say that I've trusted in, in the Lord. And I'm not afraid to say that He's my God. We as believers need to be careful because a lot of times that outward shame is just an expression of an inward shame. And the reason that we closet Christians, quote-unquote, is because we're really not walking with God in our private life like we ought to. And so rather than be a hypocrite, we'll just keep quiet about it. Isn't it funny how, and you talk to backslidden people sometimes, and, you know, I've been backslidden my life. A lot of you probably have, probably most of you to one way or another. And I've talked to backslidden people before, and, I, and they'll say sometimes, well, at least I'm not a hypocrite. Well, like, that's some kind of badge of honor. You know? Well, at least I'm not a hypocrite. No, you're backslidden is what you are. You may not be a hypocrite, but you're still not right with God. A lot of times they'll say, well, at least I'm not a hypocrite. No, you're too prideful to seek the help from God that you need. Why not be ashamed to profess that we need God? Why not be ashamed to admit that, hey, listen, friend, the only way, I, I've, got a, I've got a wonderful wife. I mean, I'm blessed with a wonderful wife. And I try to be a good husband to her. But do you know that the only way my marriage is going to make it is if God is right smack dab in the middle of it. We've got a good church. I mean, I love our church. I don't, I don't, I don't understand our church, but I love them. Amen. I mean, I'm the preacher, and I think half the time you don't understand me. I'm swapping words around, saying stuff wrong, but I hope you love me. And I, I love our church, but listen, you can have the nicest people. You can have a solid preaching and good singing and great fellowship, and you can have a meal every Friday or every Sunday night or Tuesdays for no reason. But let me tell you something, a church is not going to be anything to the glory of God without God in the midst of it. I'm not afraid to admit that. I mean, listen, if this thing's going to float and going to sail, it's not going to be because of Toby Weber. It's going to be because Jesus Christ is in the midst and the presence of it. He's being exalted and lifted up and glorified and served and praised and honored and worshipped. That's the only way this thing's going to make it and be something worth talking about. Uh, the only way, I, I tell you, it, it scares, kids scare me. Do kids scare you? You ain't got enough sense if they don't. Amen. <laughs> I mean, kids scare me, and kids are getting weirder. I don't mean that mean. I just, I'm honest. Kids are weirder now than they've ever been. I, can I share with you? I mean, I'm burdened for young people today. And I see the things that they're facing. They're facing things that, that I, and I'm not that far ahead of them. I mean, I'm a young man, but things that even I didn't have to face. Let me tell you something. The only way that these kids, not just these, but any of them, are going to turn out to be anything is if we make sure there's some God in their life. We ought not be ashamed. And we ought to teach our kids to not be ashamed of God either. I fear that a lot of them are ashamed of God because their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and so on and so forth are ashamed of God. And that's what they've learned and that's what they've been taught. They've been taught this weak, watered-down Christianity that won't make a murmur and won't make a shout and won't make a difference. And they've been taught this weak and watered-down Christianity that's Sunday morning only, that's just dress up on Sunday and grab that Bible and dust it off and tote it in with you, pretend to be something for a couple of hours, then go out and live like the rest of the world for the rest of the week. Hey, they see that. They see that. And they pick up on it and they learn it. 
we better understand that we're going to have to profess God with our lives, not just with our lips. And we're going to have to do it more than one day a week or two days a week or three days a week. We don't need to be ashamed of God. We need to be willing to profess Him. I want to give you a second thing. Not only do we need to uh, not be ashamed to profess Him, but look at verse number 2. What's David doing here? He says, bow down thine ear to me, deliver me speedily. Now, what's he doing? Think about that. Look at verse 17. He says, for I have called upon thee. Now, what's David doing? David's praying. Is that not correct? He's praying. He says, bow down thine ear to me. He's talking to God and he's praying. Verse 17, he's asking God to hear him. He's praying. And I would say as believers, we ought never be ashamed to profess him, but we ought to never be ashamed to pray to him either. There is an all-out attack on prayer today. Actually, I'd say there was an all-out attack on prayer about 40 years ago. We taught a whole generation of young people that prayer had no place in the schoolhouse. Well, they took prayer out and the guns went in, didn't they? Now, what happened? They took prayer out, and when they took prayer out, they took God out, because, you know, that's the dichotomy of it. You take prayer out, and you take the power and presence of God out of a situation, whether it's a church or, or a family or, or, or a single person's life and relationship with God. You take prayer out of it, and you took the power of God out of it. And we taught a whole generation of young people that prayer was unimportant, that it was just the uh, vain murmurings and repetitions of a bunch of seemingly religious people, that it was just talking to a fairy tale, speaking to ourselves. And our nation declined more rapidly than we could have ever imagined. There was two things at the forefront of the, uh, of the deterioration of our country that took place in the 60s and in the 70s. And some of you that have been around a little while, you know that I'm telling the truth. Two things. First was perverted Bibles. When perverted Bibles came on the scene in the 60s was when the NIV was published. In 1952 was when the RSV was published. When those came onto the scene, all of a sudden the, the, the sails had been cut from the church's ship. They didn't have any idea, any direction. They didn't know what was right. They didn't know what was wrong. And you say, well, it's not that big of a deal. Well, where do you think all that trial and turmoil and problem came from? Where do you think that revolution came from in the 60s? Where do you think we got a generation of young people that had no idea what morality was? Well, we took the standard for morality and we clouded it up and we stirred up the mud. The second thing is when they took prayer out of schools. When they did these two activities, they cut off uh, a whole generation's ability to hear from God and God's ability to hear from them. When they did this, they, they set about destroying a nation. I think we're reaping that today, don't you? I mean, we, live in a day, we live in a day when our president says, uh, when the Olympic Games come around, the president says what he's hoping and looking forward to is seeing some lesbian, gay, and transgender people bring home some gold medals. God help us. That that's what our president's excited about. I mean, there's something wrong with that. don't even make political sense. There's something wrong with that. There's an agenda, don't you believe? And we as believers, we've got to come to the place where we're willing to take a stand for Jesus Christ again. One of the areas that we're going to have to do it is in the matter of prayer. We don't need to be ashamed that we need to pray to Him. I know that this world would have us to believe that prayer, uh, just like Christianity as a whole, is a crutch. Uh, and it's much more than that. <laughs> Prayer is our lifeline to the God of heaven. And David said, I'm not ashamed to say that prayer is one of the tools that I use to get through the things that I'm going through. It's funny how we treat prayer. 
Uh, and it's been said before, and I believe this is true, that we treat prayer a lot of times. You've heard people say, and I saw it on church sign. Well, you know, some people need their church signs took away. You know, I mean, I believe that. Maybe that's rude and mean. I say that with kind of tongue-in-cheek. But, I mean, some people just need them took away. I saw somebody put on church sign one time. said, when, when everything else fails, pray. Friend, that's what's wrong with Christianity today. After we've tried everything else, might as well pray. No, friend. Go to prayer in the first place. Let that be your first resource and your first recourse in your Christian walk. David said, I'm not ashamed to pray. I'm not ashamed that I need prayer. And I'm not ashamed that prayer changes things. One of the greatest lessons that God has taught me since I've started pastoring is the power of prayer. And I'll be honest, Brother Charlie, I've seen it. I've learned it more. And I'm not, I, don't, I'm, I hope I'm not telling on myself when I say this. But the lessons I've learned from prayer, the majority of them, are lessons that I've learned from other people's prayer life. I mean, one of the blessings of being a pastor is hearing week after week and sometimes day after day, people speak of how God has heard and answered their prayer. That builds my faith. That encourages me as a pastor and as a Christian to know these things. Listen, we ought to be bold. Bold in our prayer. We ought to come uh, boldly under the throne of grace. But then we ought to be bold telling people what God has done for us. I believe we ought to not be ashamed to profess Him and to pray to Him. And speaking of uh, telling of His goodness, look at verse 7. David says, I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy. Look down at verse number 21. He says, Blessed be the Lord, for He hath showed me His marvelous kindness in a strong city. Now, what's David doing here? Uh, The first thing he does is he professes the Lord. Uh, The second thing he does is he prays to the Lord. What's the third thing he's doing? He's praising God in these verses. He's speaking. First, he says, definitively, I will rejoice in the Lord. Verse number 7, I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy. And then in verse number 21, he does this by speaking of God showing him marvelous works and bringing him uh, out of a strong city or showing him marvelous works in a city. David is praising God for what God has done in his life. And could I say that as believers, we ought never be ashamed to praise him for what he's done. God's done so much for us. I mean, uh, 99% of the things God's done for us, we're completely unaware of. We very rarely praise Him for the 1% we are aware of. We've always got something to praise God for. And I'm not going to hammer on this because I hammered on it some this morning. But let me just say that, that the reason that we have so much trouble witnessing to people is because Christians have become such a dead bunch of people. They've quit talking about the goodness of God. Hey, there ought not be any question in this world whether God's alive or not. I mean, Christians, if no one else, Christians ought to at least be the ones that are giving testimony to the fact that though you may not know Him, He's still alive and well today. And I know this evening that God is real. I know that He's alive. I know that He saved me, and I know that He cares about my life. I know He's interested in me as an individual. And I know all this because of the experience that I've had in the person of Jesus Christ, not just on the day I got saved, but every day since then. I am acquainted with an Almighty God, and I know from my dealings with Him that He's real. We ought to be telling people that. We ought to be letting people know what God's doing for us. Hey, God help you with some financial issues, you ought to tell somebody. God helps you with some health issues, you ought to tell somebody. 
God helps you with some emotional issues or, or family issues, you ought to tell somebody about it. Because when we do not praise, we do a disservice to our prayer life. I think it's absolutely vital that we take note and keep record. Whether we do it on paper or in the, in the margin of our mind, we ought to take note of what we prayed for. And that will help us to praise Him later when He answers those things. And, and when we praise Him, that ought to help us then to pray later because we remember what He's done in our life. We ought never be ashamed to talk about the goodness and grace of God. I say that we ought to profess Him. We ought to pray to Him. We ought to praise Him. We ought never be ashamed of these things. But look down at verse number 5. He says, into thine hand I commit my spirit. Look down at verse number 9. He says, have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Mine eye is consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly. Now, what's he doing in this verse? Well, in verse number 10 we get some clarification. He says, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity and my bones are consumed. So we find, and it may seem like it's a little bit of the ox before, or the cart, ox before the cart, or the cart before the ox, or the car in front of the bus, or whatever it is. You know what I'm saying, amen? Uh, it may seem like it's a little bit backwards. But what he's saying in verse number 10 is he's saying, because of the sin that is in my life, I am grieved. By the way, that's conviction. That's what that is. That's sorrow. He is aware and troubled by the sin that's in his life. He's convicted by it, and it's causing him grief. And so in verse number 9, which is the framework or context to that thought, he is coming to the Lord and he is asking the Lord to have mercy upon him. He is presenting himself before the Lord. I would say that as believers, we ought never be ashamed to present ourselves before the Lord. Let me tell you something. If I had to go into the throne room of God based upon my merit, I'd never enter in. If I if I had to go in because of my righteousness, I'd never go in. If I if I prayed to God because I felt like I deserved it or earned it or or felt like I'd never make a mistake again, I'd never go in. But you know the Bible says that we have access by faith through his blood. We have access to the throne room of God only by the finished work of Calvary, the price that's been paid for our sin debt. And so we are to understand from that that nothing we do, listen carefully, nothing we do can make us more worthy or less worthy to enter into the presence of God. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying. I'm not saying there's nothing that can affect your relationship with Him. Of course something can affect your fellowship with Him. But what I'm merely saying is this. When you enter into the presence of God, you're not entering in because you're such a swell person <laughs> and God just, you know, overlooks who you are. The only way you can enter in is through the person of Jesus Christ. If you've been washed in His blood and redeemed by His grace. And I want to share with you, and I've shared this before, but I want to share with you a little bit about me. You may not be this way, but I know I am. And I have a tendency sometimes, if I have sin in my heart and life, you say, preacher, you have sin in your heart and life from time to time. Well, as long as i got this old flesh, I just seem to have sin in my life sometimes. I do wrong and I fail. I mess up. I'm human after all. I know I don't look at Brother Ralph, but I'm human. And I mess up sometimes. And when I've sinned and done wrong in my life, to me there is an anxiety and a shame and a fear about praying to God and asking Him for forgiveness. Now, you may not experience that, but in my life I do. 
And I found that there have been times when I have allowed myself to continue on in my sin because I was afraid to go into the presence of God because I knew what, what filth and dirt that I was. And could I say to you tonight, we ought never be ashamed to go into the presence of God. We don't, there ain't a single one of us deserves it or earns it. I mean, all through the Old Testament, God sent a message to us concerning our iniquity. When He constructed the temple or gave the pattern for Moses to construct the tabernacle and later on for Solomon to construct the temple, there was a basic framework to it. And you had a, an outer court in which just about anybody could go. And then within that, you had what was called the holy place. And that was the place wherein the priests would go and they would minister within this holy place and give their sacrifices and their offerings. And then within that, in a small little uh, rectangle or square room, uh, within that room was what was called the holy of holies. Within this room sat the mercy seat and the ark of the covenant. And it was entered into only once a year by the high priest. On the day we see it on the calendar now is Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. And on that day, uh, every year, the high priest would go in with the shed blood and he'd present himself before God with a sacrifice uh, for his sins and for the sins of the entire nation. Uh, and the Bible tells us that the Shekinah glory of God would meet with them there upon that seat and God would view that sacrifice. Uh, God would see it as an atonement, as a covering for another year that would stay his wrath and stay his judgment on the nation of Israel. Well, in between that, holy place and the holy of holies, uh, there was a vast and large curtain that hung there, many inches thick and many feet tall. It was so big that you could not see through it. You couldn't even pretend to see through it. Uh, it was absolutely impenetrable. And when the high priest would go in there, if he had sin in his life, uh, God would strike him dead. And so he would have bells that they would tie and sew into the hem of his garment. They'd take a rope and they'd tie it around his waist. When he went in there to offer the sacrifice, they knew if they heard the bells ringing that God had struck him dead. And they'd drag that lifeless body out from the place of God's judgment. But this curtain was there, and this curtain stood as a barrier between man and between God. It gave one absolutely, uh, or one absolute message, one unalterable, immutable truth that there was a barrier between God and man, that man could not go beyond that barrier, that his iniquity had separated him from God. That curtain essentially was a big stop sign to fallen man. The Bible teaches that that uh, was a picture of our Lord and Savior's humanity. His keeping of the law perfectly. The Bible says, uh, through the veil, which is to say His flesh. He came in the flesh and He kept the law, the Bible teaches. Uh, he did not come, and He said this Himself, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He kept every single commandment that was ever given. He was the absolute perfect Jew. He never sinned. In Him was no sin. He knew no sin, and He did no sin. The Bible teaches that on Calvary's hill He was made sin for you and I. He bore our burden. He bore our sins, and He became our sins that day. There's an interesting thing that happened. Uh, whenever Christ hung upon on the cross, he cried out to the Lord. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is uh, to be interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, and there he hung in darkness on the cross. Uh, when it was all done, he said, it is 
finished. You know, the Bible teaches uh, that at that time, that veil that hung in the temple from the top to the bottom was rent in twain by divine hands that man could not touch, that man could not attain. God, through the person of Jesus Christ, gave entrance and access to the believer. That's the reason you get to pray. That's the reason you have a relationship with God. It's not because of your piddly and vain attempts at righteousness. Your best attempts at righteousness. The book of Isaiah says they're filthy rags in the, in the sight of God. They mean nothing. Uh, in fact, as long as, like we talked about this morning with that miry clay, the longer you try to fight and get yourself out of it, the deeper you're going to get in it. Until you submit yourself to the righteousness of Christ, uh, you're never going to know salvation. And as a believer, after we've been saved, we have the confidence that our entrance into God is not based upon our own morality or our own ability, but upon the finished work of Calvary. And so listen to me tonight. If you have sin in your life, don't be ashamed to come to Calvary. Don't be ashamed to come to the throne room of God. Don't be ashamed to go to the person that can forgive you and heal you of it. He's able to tonight. I believe we ought never be ashamed to profess Him and to pray to Him, to praise Him and to present ourselves to Him. But let me give you one final thing and I'm going to hush. Look at verse number 23. What's David doing here? He says, "Oh, love the Lord, all ye His saints. For the Lord preserveth the faithful and plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. All ye that hope in the Lord. Now, David evidently is speaking to people that feel frail and feel weak, because he says, strengthen your heart. He's writing to people that are fearful, because he says, be of good courage. He's writing to people that feel as though they are uh, in peril or in danger because he says that the Lord preserveth the faithful. And what does he tell them concerning these things? Look at it again. O love the Lord, all ye His saints. You know what he's doing? He's prescribing the Lord to others. We ought to pray to Him. We ought to profess Him. We ought to praise Him. We ought to present ourselves to Him. We ought never be ashamed to prescribe Him to others. Uh, Listen, we ought to do more of showing people that the Lord's the answer to their problems. We ought to do more of pointing people towards the Lord. I think we have a tendency sometimes to think that after a person's saved, uh, our our responsibility to them and their life to uh, be an example to them or to lead them to the Lord, that that is done and finished with because they've been saved. And I'm thankful that once they've been saved, they can't never be re-saved. They don't need to be re-saved. They've saved and saved the right way the first time. But let me tell you something. Your scope of influence in a person's life does not end when they get saved. It begins when they get saved. David's talking to saints when he says this. And he says, uh, don't be fearful. Trust in the Lord. He'll strengthen you. He'll preserve you. He'll be faithful to you. He'll help you. He'll watch over you. Can I say tonight, whatever you're going through, can I say that the Lord is still the answer? You may be discouraged tonight. Can I say the Lord's still the answer? You may be fearful tonight. Can I say that a, that a good, healthy relationship with God is still the answer? You may have sin in your life tonight. Can I say that there's a throne room and a place for you, and the Lord's willing to forgive you? We ought to be willing, ready, and able, and not ashamed to tell people that God is what they need in their lives. Now, there's a kind way. 
There's a compassionate way and there's a humble way to tell people that. I don't mean being obnoxious or obstinate with people. But let me tell you something. When you see a person's looking, you ought to try to help them find it. Right? God puts people in our lives that are looking. I mean, listen, if you've got a friend that comes to you and says, Can I just talk to you? I'm going through a hard time. They're looking. If God's put a co-worker uh, with you uh, that says, you know, I can't figure out what's going on right now in my life, they're looking. And if you've got somebody in your life that says, would you pray for me? They're looking. They're needing help. They're needing encouragement. And as believers, we ought not be ashamed to tell them, you know what will fix your problems? The Lord Jesus Christ can fix your problems. We ought never be ashamed of the Lord and never be ashamed to profess Him and prescribe Him and so on and so forth in the lives of others. Let's pray together tonight.